morning. Uh, I was thinking this morning that John, our first John, he's on sabbatical. Our second John, Athen, he's in Germany. So here you are, third John. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, nevertheless, I am privileged to be here. I'm excited every Sunday and this Sunday to open the word of God with you and to be encouraged and challenged by it. So before we do that, please pray with me. God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I praise you. I thank you that your word counsels us, instructs us, it teaches us. I pray that it will do that this morning, that you will show us how we ought to live, that you will open up our hearts to us, see where we can be more and more like you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. One of the colleges I attended was a small Bible college uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I had a great experience there. I did not get my degree there. I took four colleges to get it, one degree. But uh, I had so many valuable lessons learned during my time there. One that has stuck with me pretty vividly was during an Old Testament survey class. Uh, my professor was relaying to us, to his class, about a time where he was convicted by a sin. Uh, he shared he was convicted by this particular sin and increasingly aware that he needed to confess this sin to his wife. He didn't share what this sin was. So he acknowledged to us, to his class, his fear, his anxiety over confessing this sin. So he apologized to his wife, he said, and he asked to her for forgiveness. The words his wife said back to him are what stuck with me and really made me excited for marriage if that was God's plan for my life. She said, I have never loved you more than I do right now, and I forgive you. I cannot recall what book or passage my professor was referencing, but he may very well have been doing a brief survey of our passage today, Psalm 32, where we will see conviction of sin. We will see confession of sin, and we will see forgiveness. Not the forgiveness of a spouse, but the forgiveness of God who surrounds those who are godly, those who confess sin with steadfast love and mercy. Let's read Psalm 32 together. Please listen or follow along with me. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule, 
without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. As we walk through this psalm this morning, we will conclude that frequent conviction and confession of sin is critical to our joy and godliness. To that end, there will be four points this morning. If you're a note taker, you probably won't be able to write these all down right now. They're a little long, but I want you to know where we're headed, so here they are. Point number one, blessing begins with conviction of sin. Point number two, conviction is connected to confession of sin. Point number three, confession of sin is connected to forgiveness. Point number four, forgiveness is connected to humble communion with God. And if it's helpful to you, uh, when identifying these points, I was definitely thinking about that kid's song, Them Bones, about how the thigh bone is connected to the hip bone and so on. So if that's helpful to you, a helpful pattern as we walk through the text, there you go. Looking at the context of Psalm 32, very briefly, it was authored by David, and while his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah towers above his other transgressions in our minds, David's life was not confined to one sin. He was a man who, like any of us, could justifiably write a prayer detailing confession of sin at the end of any day of his life. So David begins his psalm in verses 1 and 2 with lines of poetry that summarize what he unpacks for the rest of the poem. Blessed. Who are blessed? The forgiven. The one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Three different ways the blessing of forgiven sin is reinforced. And in that last statement, in whose spirit there is no deceit, that is the state of one who is forgiven. Instead of hiding sin, and I say hiding in quotations because, kids, what sin can be hidden from God? None. Thank you, kids and adults. So instead of being deceitful and hiding sin, it is being exposed, revealed, confessed. The emphasis of the parallelism verse in these verses is twofold. Sin, transgression, iniquity. Those words encompass the breadth of our sin. And the accompanying words with them, transgression, forgiven. Sin, covered. Iniquity, not counted against us. Shows the more encompassing, the all-encompassing forgiveness of God for our sin. That's one emphasis here. The other one is how blessed it is to be forgiven. Think about that for a moment. No deceit in your heart. Nothing hidden. Your sin is forgiven, covered, not counted against you. What a blessing indeed, and what a good place to start this psalm. And we're going to come back to it several times. Now in the next verses, David takes us into the past tense and walks us through the process that leads to this blessing that comes when we are forgiven and without deceit. And he starts in verses 3 and 4 with what life was like when sin was not confessed and when there was deceit. And those verses are our first point. Blessing begins with conviction of sin. Blessing begins with conviction of sin. 
there is no conviction of sin, verses 3 and 4 would not be here, nor would the rest of the psalm, including the blessing and joy of forgiven sin. If there's no conviction of sin, then there is no confession of sin. If there is no confession of sin, there is no forgiveness of sin. God, in his mercy, convicts us of sin. When we keep silent, when there is deceit in our hearts, when there is unconfessed sin, our bones waste away. God's hand is heavy upon us, and our strength is dried up. Now, these verses could be taken literally, as in physical affliction. There's physical affliction when there's unconfessed sin in your life. And that can be the case. God can bring conviction in such a way that there's a knot in your stomach, an inability to get a good night rest. You're laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, and even physical illness. But don't misunderstand it as any time you're dealing with an illness or an ache or insomnia or osteoporosis, that that means there's unconfessed sin in your life. I think this should primarily be read poetically. But there is an anguish, there is a misery that accompanies unconfessed sin. If silence here is representative of unconfessed sin, then my bones wasting away is speaking to the degrading, the weakening of our spiritual vitality through this unconfessed sin. This groaning all day long, it's the product of living with stifled confession of sin. It is miserable. It is miserable to live with unconfessed sin. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David here is relaying a time when he knew what he did was wrong, and he was refusing to acknowledge it and to confess it. And God's hand was heavy upon him, and his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Again, like bones wasting away, your vitality, your effectiveness, it's withering under this unconfessed sin. So to you, I'm sure all of us here have felt a pang of guilt, a, a conviction over something we have done or not done. Uh, giving a dishonest reason for not helping a church member in a time of need, or maybe just not feeling like it because of our selfishness. Or maybe it was watching a movie or a show that was riddled with things that are not honorable, pure, commendable. Mindlessly scrolling through social media, clicking on a news or entertainment article that is in no way edifying. At the very least, it's not making the best use of your time. Or perhaps it was words said about a coworker behind their back that were unnecessary, did not build them up. Maybe it was a promise kept to your child or not kept to your child or to someone else. That feeling of conviction over these sins carries with it some of the intense verbs of these verses, that groaning, that heaviness, weariness. But remember that it is a blessing. It is a mercy from God that we feel this way, that we are not indifferent to our sin. When we're actively and regularly being convicted of sin, we should be encouraged because that's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. So take this opportunity to think, has conviction of sin become more or less sensitive for you over time? Are there sins that you may have been quick to confess a year ago, two years ago, or 10 years ago that now you can go right through without even giving it a second thought? Perhaps your realization is, I just said or did that without feeling anything. And not too long ago, that would have grieved my heart, and I would have confessed it. I felt exactly that way. So what was the cause? I'll propose several possible causes for that desensitization to sin and conviction of sin. One, we grow comfortable with our sin. Like we grow comfortable with a lot of things in life. 
We have this untamed patch of grass in our yard that several owners ago was apparently a beautiful English garden. Uh, well, now it's not. And there have been stretches where I've attacked it. I've been cutting down trees, I've been weeding, I've made a great strategy for making this park beautiful again. Uh, and then the weeds keep growing. And now I'm kind of thinking, well, at least I don't need to rake the leaves that fall there, and maybe someday stumps will be popular and cool. Uh, so I've grown comfortable with this untamed patch of my lawn. And in the same way, we grow comfortable with sin if we aren't rooting it out and confessing it. Maybe we say something about a coworker, man, they are not a hard worker. Okay, not so bad. Nothing to see there, right? And then, man, they don't have a hardworking bone in their body. They never pull their weight on anything. And then, I can't stand him. His laziness, it's infuriating. He's not good at what he does, and I heard he's in hot water because he's been falsifying his hours. We've grown comfortable there with the sin of slander and of gossip. We didn't confess the sin when it was just a small weed, and it grew rapidly out of control. Nevertheless, whether that sin is a small weed or it has grown into a formidable thistle bush, persist in confessing sin anytime there is conviction. And that connects to another possible cause of dead and conviction, and it's kind of a sneak peek of the second point, and that is not making a habit of confessing sin. Sure, if there's a big sin, an obvious one, maybe we yell at a loved one and somebody overhears us, or maybe somebody confronts us about our sin like Nathan did to David, yeah, then we may confess it then. But aside from that, are we seeking out the presence of sin in our hearts? Again, back to our yard. We have ticks in our area. And we need to be rooting out areas of sin like we hunt for ticks on our kids. If the neighborhood kids and ours are playing in the yard and later that night we get a text message on the neighborhood text thread, hey, found a tick on so-and-so during bath time, the hunt is on. We are looking for ticks. Is that a tick? No, it's dirt. Is that a tick? No, it's a freckle. But we are looking for ticks. We are trying to find them. Are we rooting out sin as earnestly as we seek out ticks? What are some ways to do that with sin? To seek the presence of sin in our attitudes, our words, and our thoughts? Was well, there any purposeful quiet time in your life, especially at the end of the day? Reflect on the day and offer up a prayer of confession to God? I encourage you, pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. See how God answers that prayer and helps you to realize areas of sin. One last thing that can deaden our conviction, not having honest accountability or close relationships where admonition is invited and expected. Especially if you're a private person or an introvert, Welcome to the club, first of all, a club that never has any meetings. <laughs> and secondly, I particularly commend to you church membership and consistent small group attendance. When you are praying for one another in those small group settings, rather than just asking for prayer about physical maladies or work issues, those are important, and we should bring those to the Lord on each other's behalf. But additionally, share an area of sin. Ask for accountability from others in the group. Invite people to ask about it. 
encourage you, pray for you, and admonish you as is required. And invite others to point out sin in your life. Others, especially those closest to you, may see areas of sin far more readily in your life. And if you have a heart posture of humble receptivity, you will far more readily receive it when it comes. So pray for conviction of sin and be willing, be willing to let others speak the truth to you. Something I've been praying for my children and the children of this church, obviously we cannot follow those we love around the rest of their lives and point out areas of sin or areas where they disobey authority or disobey God's word. So I'm praying that God would give our children personal conviction and sorrow over sin from the Holy Spirit, that they would be led to independently confess sin and ask for forgiveness. I invite you to pray this with me for our children, for ourselves. Children, regarding this conviction of sin, if you shout at a sibling, get into a little fight over who gets to play the video game, play with the Legos, dolls, you stomp up the stairs in anger, slam the door, you send a harsh text message to a friend or say something critical about another friend, speak with a prideful or angry attitude toward your parents. If, after doing that, in your heart, you recognize what you did was wrong, you acknowledge that it opposes God's nature and teaching in the Bible, if your heart feels like it's starting to twist into a knot, that is conviction of sin. Don't stifle that. I encourage you to confess that sin. Go to the person you sinned against. Confess the sin to them, apologize, and ask for forgiveness. And confess it to God. If you're not sure what to say or do in that moment, go to your parents, probably your biggest fans. And it may become the happiest day of your life, their life, my life. It takes courage and humility to confess sin. But it is obedience to God, and it brings joy to God. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I've been talking about this conviction, this guilt over sin, and maybe you're here and you're thinking, man, guy needs to stop being so hard on us and on himself. We all make mistakes, shake it off, right? As long as you're doing your best to be a good person, isn't that what's important? And I suppose if you or I were making the rules... That would sound to us like a pretty easygoing and appealing rule. Do your best. Hopefully things work out in the end. But God, creator of the universe, the ruler over all things, he made the rules. And what did he call us to? To be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect, says in Matthew 5. He calls us to be perfect, and we cannot be. I've already mentioned many things today that any one of us is guilty of. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So maybe now you're thinking, well, then maybe God needs to stop being so hard on us. If none of us can be perfect, then why is God holding us to an impossible standard? Doesn't sound like a very loving and forgiving God to me. Except that God is loving. And is so perfectly loving that he gave an avenue of escape from our imprisonment to sin, while not altering his holiness at all. For any kids that were at VBS a couple weeks ago, you may have the answer to this line of questioning memorized. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are ungodly, and God is God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but you believe you're basically a good person, please understand that there are things you need to be forgiven of. God is perfectly holy. He is without sin, and he cannot be with sin. So we cannot have relationship with him unless our sin is covered. Doing our best to be a good person or trying to be better is not the bar God has set. Our sins must be forgiven. Regarding forgiveness, there's this thought in society that a show of strength or power or authority is to never apologize, never ask forgiveness, never show weakness, right? That's what society may teach, but not God. He doesn't say never show weakness. He says, come to me in your weakness, in your sin. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God is not looking to see our bravado, our never backing down, our no regrets lifestyle. His desire is to see a broken sinner, fully aware of their brokenness and fully dependent on God for forgiveness of sin. David was keeping silent. His body was wasting. Strength was draining. And then comes verse 5. Let's go there with our second point, which is short. Conviction is connected to confession of sin. Conviction is connected to confession of sin. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. In this confession, those three words that encompass our sins from verses 1 and 2, the words sin, iniquity, and transgression, they're all revisited. The idea of there being no deceit is also revisited from the first verses, as he did not cover his iniquity. All was revealed, laid bare, confessed to God. It's starting to point us back to the description of those who are blessed in the first two verses. So David's on the path of blessing through being convicted of sin, now confession of sin, What's that last element missing? That last part of verse 5. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Because there is no pause, there is no delay, no deliberation between our confession and God's forgiveness, we're at point three. Confession of sin is connected to forgiveness. Confession of sin is connected to forgiveness. After all of this confession, this confession of sin, of transgression, of iniquity, laying everything bare, it is all forgiven. Friends, there is nothing you or I have done this week, nothing you or I have done or said in the past, nothing you or I will do in the future that God cannot, will not forgive, stands ready to forgive. If you come to him in humility, recognizing in your heart that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, and you confess your sin to him, understanding that through God sending his son Jesus to be a substitution for our sins, an absorber of our sins, you will be forgiven because Jesus took the blame and penalty for you. Friends, conviction and confession of sin is critical to our joy and godliness, and it is critical to the gospel. Christ came to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And Jesus says that about himself when he's teaching from a synagogue in his ministry. How are we imprisoned? We're imprisoned in our sin. And we're imprisoned under the law that we cannot on our own obey. How are we released from that bondage, from that prison? Through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus came to earth and lived the perfect life we could not. He died on the cross, death being the penalty for sin and not a penalty a perfect man has to pay. But he did that for you. And then he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, victorious over death. How does that benefit you? He lived the perfect life you cannot. He paid the penalty, death, that you deserve. Through his resurrection, he was victorious over the power of sin and over the penalty of sin. And he offers that victory to you. Back to the verse I mentioned earlier, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is able to forgive our sins. And a church member this week helpfully pointed out to me the similarities between Psalm 32 and Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where it says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And that is such a helpful reminder that God forgives not simply as a result of our confession of sin, our act of confession, but because he is merciful and his mercy is expressed through Christ. If we confess sin to an unmerciful God, we would justifiably be terrified and hopeless. But we can confess boldly because we can know God's character and trust that he will forgive our sins. We've had conviction, confession, forgiveness. Now we have our fourth point. Confession and forgiveness is connected to communion with God. Confession and forgiveness connected the communion with God. Verse 6 begins, therefore. So, in other words, in light of the argument made for the profound, inexpressible blessing of the confession and forgiveness of sin, what do we do? Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Equipped with the knowledge that God readily and freely forgives sin, Go to him with your sin. Offer prayer to him. Confess your sin and receive forgiveness. Friends, we live in an age of mercy. But this age will end. Christ will return in judgment. So whether you are a teen or preteen and you think you have your whole life ahead of you, or you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or so on, and you think you have the rest of your life ahead of you, don't presume to know the length of your days. Call on God while he may be found. Also, don't presume upon the forgiveness of God by delaying and confessing sin. Call on God while he may be found. And what is promised to those who are praying, regularly confessing sin to God? God's judgment will not reach you. And his judgment here is portrayed as this flash flood of rushing waters. Instead of God's judgment, we are hidden from, preserved from trouble. 
And then the speech changes. And in verse 8, God is speaking to David, declaring to David what he will do. God says to David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Through God's promise of instruction, teaching, and counsel given through his word and promised to those who are in the regular habit of confessing sin, we are being shown the way we should go. God has his eye upon us, sanctifying us as we pursue obedience to him. And this shouldn't be read in a, I'm watching you, kind of way of reading it, but rather a watchfulness like a father watching his toddler navigate their way up the stairs. And he's helping them as they make their way, watching them closely. This humble, teachable, forgiven sinner is then contrasted with a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle. So what does acting like a mule look like in confessing sin? Have you ever sinned and thought to yourself, oh man, compared to what I've been doing or what I could have done, that was relatively minor. So I'm not going to confess that sin to anyone or to God. Or I'm not going to confess that sin of anger to my child that I just displayed after walking to their bedroom for the fourth time tonight. They deserved it. Or I don't want to confess this sin because I don't want to damage my relationship with that person. I love them. Friends, these are all lies Satan is trying to get you to believe. Rebuke those sinful thoughts and be quick to confess sin, not stubborn like a mule. Referring back to those three examples, rejoice in the tender conscience of confessing all sin. Display to your children a biblical model of confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. And know that having no deceit between you and another person is the way to not damage a relationship with a person. And that leads to kind of a sub-point of point four. Uh, humility is connected back to conviction. Going full circle. When we are teachable, seeking instruction, avoiding the temptation to be like a stubborn mule, we are going to have a conviction of sin that leads to confession, forgiveness, and communion with God through a restored relationship. That's a great cycle. What if the cycle is broken, though, through a life of reluctant confession or of deceit before God, not ultimately possible, and man? It results in the first half of verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Instead of being preserved from trouble, as in verse 7, those troubles are compounded for the wicked who do not confess sin to God. But for the one who trusts in the Lord, you will be surrounded by steadfast love. And that again is pointing back to verses 6 and 7, that protection, preservation, instruction that comes from a restored relationship with God. David opened this psalm explaining who is blessed and went on to explain how that blessing is obtained through the conviction of sin, through the confession of sin and forgiveness and the regular prayer to God receiving his instruction, teaching, and counsel as you walk through life. How does he conclude? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. To quote the song, You Forgave Me, from the theologically rich music album, Slugs and Bugs, Volume 2, don't judge a book by its cover, 
Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience has been forgiven, whose sin has been put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Friends, be encouraged. What joy there is for the upright in heart when in your heart there is no deceit. You are confessing sin, receiving forgiveness, and using God's word as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Friends, be challenged. How often is it that the only prayer of confession in our week is the one that is prayed right before the Lord's Supper, like Chris is going to do in a few minutes? Ensure when you are praying alone in a small group, corporately, that we are confessing sin. And as I said before, that is central to the gospel. We could understand everything there is to know about the Bible and Christ and life is death and resurrection. But if we do not acknowledge that we are sinners, that we need a Savior and confess our sin to God, trusting him to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then that knowledge will be tragically useless. Call on him at a time while he may be found. But the one who trusts in the Lord for forgiveness, what surrounds them? Steadfast love. What is the one who is godly doing? Responding to conviction of sin, offering prayer to God, prayers of confession. And who is blessed? The one who is forgiven, fully confessing sin to God. This psalm drives home the reality that conviction and confession of sin is critical to our joy and godliness. You are a Christian, but you have secret sins, unconfessed sins, sin areas that you do not want your small group, other friends, shepherding elder, your spouse to know about. Please consider the blessing, the joy, the godliness that comes from acknowledging sin and receiving God's forgiveness having no deceit in your heart. You do not consider yourself to be a Christian, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, you recognize that you have sinned, you have fallen short of perfection, fallen short of the glory of God. God's love is for you also. His forgiveness is for you also. Please consider the blessing, joy, the godliness, the salvation that comes from acknowledging sin and receiving God's forgiveness. I used to have an image on my desktop background that I especially enjoyed, had it on there for years, as it symbolized the joy of confessed and forgiven sin. And it was a man silhouetted in front of a glorious sunset, uh, arms outstretched. It's like he had been in bondage, but his chains had fallen off. That is a picture of forgiveness. Or, but far more poetically than I could, Listen to how Charles Wesley described his own experience of forgiveness for his sins from verse 4 of the hymn, And Can It Be, that we'll sing a little later. And as I read, I'll point out how it connects to the pattern of this psalm. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, that conviction. I woke My heart awoke, my spirit awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. Confession. My chains fell off, my heart was free. 
forgiveness. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Communion with God. Blessed are the forgiven. Praise God for his forgiveness. Pray for conviction. Be quick to confess. Find joy and godliness in God's forgiveness. Please pray with me. God, we praise you for your forgiveness. Praise you that you are a merciful God, that we can go to you confidently, not fearing rejection, not fearing condemnation, but knowing your nature through your revealed word. I pray that you would open our hearts, see if there be any wicked way in us. Give us opportunity today, this week, to quiet our hearts, to ask others if there is any areas of sin that needed to be rooted out. And God, if others are confessing sin to us, help us to follow your example and the example of that my professor's spouse to quickly and lovingly forgive sin, recognizing their desire to be obedient to God, receive his mercy. Pray these things in your name. Amen.